Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you now with our whole selves. Lord, as we have received your confession and your assurance of pardon, Lord, I pray that as clean people in your sight, that we may come to you with our minds and our hearts connected, that your spirit would move upon us mightily, and that we would not only hear your word, but receive it and allow it to change our lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Have you ever tried to watch a movie without the music? No. It's really, really awkward. Someday I encourage you to go onto YouTube and, and look up either the end of Star Wars A New Hope, that's the fourth one, or the Avengers Assemble scene from uh, Avengers Endgame, both with music and without music. It's horrible. It's so painful. It's drawn out. People stare at each other for minutes without speaking, and your skin just crawls. It's awful, and it's hilarious. Now, I want you to try to imagine your life without music. No music blaring on a country road in the summer. No music at your senior prom. No music at your wedding. No music at Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. We can't hardly do it, can we? See, music has a quality that changes almost every situation. Case in point with the movie soundtracks I mentioned earlier. It's the special sauce of life. Now, let's take it one step further. Think about the songs in your life that mean the most to you, especially the songs with lyrics that you think about all the time. And now imagine that they don't exist. It's pretty hard to do. You might as well try and imagine a different life. Like it or not, music and song shape the very fabric of who we are as people. They are the touchstones of our lives, reminding us of when we were young, when we first fell in love, our loved ones, our mistakes, and our victories. The words of songs can even change how we think, like that song, Cats in the Cradle. How many parents have been haunted by those lyrics when they aren't spending enough time with their kids? How many locker rooms have blared Queen's We Are the Champions after the big championship game? How many daddy-daughter dances at weddings have been put to Stephen Curtis Chapman's Cinderella? We each have a songbook to our lives, and we're each changed and shaped by the words of those songs. No matter how aware of it we are, we are a people of song molded by lyric and music. That's why I think that the book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, a whopping 150 chapters. After all, the book of Psalms is simply a songbook a sort of greatest hits compilation of ancient Israel. God and his inspiration knew that people react strongly to songs and to music in a way that they don't to other mediums. I mean, I've never seen someone close their eyes with tears streaming down their face and arms upraised when I preach, which says more about my preaching than maybe anything else, but we've all seen that reaction with music. So too, it must have been for Israel as they sang these songs together as a worshiping people. And sadly, we don't have the music to them any longer, but we are still able to be moved and captivated by their words these thousands of years later. And these words truly are captivating. The imagery in the Psalms and today's text, Psalm 91 in particular, is evocative and lyrical and interesting. Just as captivating as the images are the stories behind them. Psalm 91 is understood to be written by Moses, 
during his time leading the people through the wilderness. They were a large group of people wandering around in the desert for 40 years with no army, no weapons, and no home. The Israelites were often attacked during their journey, beset by armies and the difficulties of living exposed in the elements. So when Moses writes in verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, he knows what that means. He's seen it and lived it. In fact, Moses lists quite a few things that he and the other Israelites had to be wary of. Pestilence, plague, terror, arrows, lions, adders, oh my. They were a people on the run without a way to grow food and without a way to protect themselves when things started to go sideways. When Moses wrote this psalm, there was no end in sight to this wandering, just the endless expanse of sand and people exhausted by their trial. It's a little bit tough for us to really imagine the sort of at-your-wits-end pilgrimage that the Israelites were going through. The best that I can come up with is COVID, which is admittedly not a sentence I thought I'd ever say. But for the last two years, we've all been experiencing our own sort of wandering desert experience. We know what Moses means on a very basic low level when he mentions plagues and terror. I think that's one thing that we can wrap our heads around. We also don't know when this long, over two-year event will be over. We're not as beset by its presence as we were even six months ago, but it hasn't disappeared. It is still a reality. It's not 40 years in the desert, but it is something. To varying degrees, we're all still a bit exhausted by the changes born in that time. There was online school, changes in schedule, job losses, uncertain futures, illness, sickness, and ultimately the death of those that we love. It's not a desert, but that experience was something. If you squint really hard, you can just about see what Moses was up to. Now, how did Moses deal with his wilderness experience? He wrote a song. I can imagine him sitting at the fire one night after a long day of wilderness walking, strumming on his lyre or whatever they played back then, made from the scraps of a wagon and strings from the stomach of a goat. I don't know. Looking up at the stars, his world-weary mind looks for comfort. His eyes then drift to the tabernacle, the place where God's spirit dwells in the dead center of camp. He remembers that God is with them, that they are not asked to wander the wilderness alone. God had made a literal camp with them, living in their midst. Like a father to his children, so God is to his people. So Moses grabs a scrap of parchment, a quill, cracks his knuckles, and starts writing this song. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. 
You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Moses was writing a manifesto of what it was like to live in the protection of God as the people of God. This song was not for one person alone, but for the whole of the Israelite community. It was for this people without a home on the move in the wilderness. He was reminding them that God was their protection and their salvation, literally sheltering them in his wings like a mother hen. It's a tender and a loving image, the kind that works great in a song. And Moses knew that the people needed to be reminded of it in a song, in a way that would probably change and shape them more than mere words or a speech. Something to be sang on the roads of the wilderness over and over again until it got stuck in their heads and began to change their hearts. But if you're like me, a bit cynical, you might be wondering about what to do with verse 10. No harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. I mean, that seems totally untrue, right? Everyone in this room could give me a laundry list of the ways we've experienced harm in the last month alone. Some of us have experienced a whole heaping lot of harm in our lives. We know people that have come to so much physical harm that it's taken them from us and pulled them into a place that we can't follow. So what does Moses mean? No harm will overtake you. Really? To answer this question, we need to look a little further in scripture. In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians beset by difficulty and harm, both physical and spiritual, not unlike the ancient Israelites. Without delving too far into details, he gives them this word in Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we face death all day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, Moses and Paul weren't just writing about physical harm. They were writing about separation from the love of God, the worst kind of harm. The ancient Israelites had a moving tabernacle that held the presence of God in their camp. And tabernacle means to dwell. So all these images of God being shelter and comforter and protection literally held true for them. He lived among them. God's presence was all the protection from spiritual harm that they needed. So then, Moses is writing in his song that as long as God tabernacled, dwelled among them, 
then they could not be separated from them. They say that one of the signs of good songwriting is when the song gets better with age and time. The pictures and metaphors take on new meaning and enhance the author's original intent, bringing new color and texture to what was already there. I think we've all experienced that. Well, Psalm 91 is one of those songs. Moses wrote it for his ancient context, one where God resided in his people's presence in a movable tent. Then Jesus Christ came to tabernacle with his people in a physical body, living a sinless life, sacrificing himself for the salvation of all those who believe, resurrecting and then ascending into heaven. Jesus Christ then sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to tabernacle with his people forever, dwelling with them until he comes again. And I mentioned before that we have to squint in order to see a little bit of what it was like for ancient Israel and Moses in their day. It's sort of the same for Moses here in a reciprocal way. He had a bit of understanding as to what the song he was writing meant, but it really came to its full fruition in Jesus Christ. Through him, we have the certainty of protection and care that Psalm 91 provides. No harm can come to us nor separate us from Christ. And it's told in a song. Earlier, I referred to the ways in which music can shape and mold us as we live it uh, throughout our lives. Psalm 91 has been one of those songs for my family. My sweet mom battled stage four metastatic breast cancer for nine years until it took her away from us in December of 2020. In the latter half of her nine-year battle, she and my dad would read the same Psalm 91 to each other most every night, like clockwork, before going to bed. I know that she believed it to be true right until the very end. I didn't have her confidence, I'm afraid. I've spent the last two years wrestling with and wondering how Psalm 91 can be true. After all, my mom came to great and excruciatingly painful harm. I didn't know how she could continue to find comfort in the nightly repetition of a psalm that seemed to not provide the very care it proclaimed and promised. But some months ago, it dawned on me. She understood that even through her pain, she was still in the hand of the triune God. She knew that she could never be separated from him. She knew God still cared for her, and she knew it until the very end. And she knows it even more so now in brilliant, unimaginable detail. And she is reunited with Christ in glory. Without Christ, we would not have this assurance. To the suffering in the world, God gives an answer. Jesus Christ, his son, himself. To the pain and difficulty of the world, God answered it with his own presence to experience the very things that we experience, even the worst of it. That said, I'm afraid I have not come to the end of my wrestling with Psalm 91. While my head knows the answer to these things, my heart still needs some time to catch up. I confess to you that it's a bit mysterious to me, and I may never come to the end of my working through it, but work through it, I shall. That's what songs are for, though. They're mysterious and complex things worth giving the best of our time and thought to for the rest of our lives. Psalm 91 is a touchstone for me. I know that this song changed my mom, is changing me, and I hope it can change you. Music is a powerful thing, and the Psalms represent the very best of that. May we never come to the end of our wrestling and changing in the protection of our Lord God. And may we always do it in song, 
through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.